We are beginning officially, we kind of unofficially began it last week, but we are beginning a new series called Mosaic, Redefining Community. And this is something that we on the preaching team and the, the staff and the leaders, we've been thinking about really from as far back as September, we've been planning this, this series, which will, will now run up into Easter. And, and it's partly because we live in a culture, we live in a society where our community is beginning to unravel. Uh, or if it isn't unraveling, generally speaking, we're beginning to perceive that something has broken in Britain, to quote David Cameron. And, and at times like this, it's the church of Jesus Christ can, that can really rise to the moment. We as a community are, are more than just a bunch of people who like a bit of community singing on a Sunday morning, or people who like listening to lectures, or people who like eating donuts and drinking coffee. We're more than that. We are a people with a purpose. We've been gathered together by God himself, chosen and if you were here last week, you would have heard me said that we are chosen by him. We'll touch on that again this morning as I go through this, this little talk. But, but we are chosen by him. And, and that means something distinctive. And so in, in a season where people are beginning to talk about the state of our nation, in a season when people are beginning to lament the state of our nation and the lack of social cohesion, we in the church need to be very clear what it means to be the body of Christ, what it means to be a community of faith in the 21st century. And so we want to talk and teach about community and rethink it so we're all on the same page together, building something that is not just good for us to be part of, but actually models the future kingdom, the kingdom of God to the world. So that's where we're going with this. Let me just pray and then we'll get straight into it. Heavenly Father, we want to say thank you to you for your grace and for your mercy. Thank you for calling us to yourself, but thank you also for calling us together. And Lord, as I share these thoughts now over the next few minutes, Lord, I want to be engaging, I want to be entertaining even, but most of all, Lord God, I'll forego all of that if I can just be effective. So, Lord, we pray that the words I speak and the thoughts that you trigger in our hearts and our minds as these words go out will fulfill the purpose you have for them. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Okay, so uh, last week we, we looked at 1 Peter 2, verses uh, 9 to 10, and uh, I think we might even still have it. Thank you, James. And uh, it goes and says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And if you missed the talk, please, please, it, it will help you. If you listen to the podcast from last Sunday, you'll also hear one or two testimonies given, which was great too. But the things we pulled out of that was that we were God's treasured possession, that uh, we were a royal priesthood. And, and the kind of spin we took on that, the, the approach we took to that concept was that a priest is one who mediates between God and man. And we, the people of God, the body of Christ on earth, we gathered here are those who represent Christ to the community in which we live. 
We, you know, the priest cares for the community. The priest intercedes before God for the community. The priest mediates, and we as a body are that contact, that, that contact. We are to model, as I said a little earlier, the future kingdom, the kingdom of God to the community. So we take on that priestly role, representing God, his hands, his feet, his mouth, his heart for the community. But also in this, we see that God calls us a holy nation, and holy doesn't mean sort of, you know, something ethereal, it means set apart, it means dedicated to God. So if we have a role to play, a special place in God's eyes within the context of our society, we also have a special place in his heart because we are his people, his treasured possession. When the the children of Israel gathered around Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, you can read this account, he talks to them, he, he speaks to them as those whom he has chosen, whom he has set apart, those whom he's called to himself, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He uses the same language which Peter here draws on. And it's all because he has plans for his own people in the context of society. A people with a purpose, the purpose being to mediate and model the kingdom of God in the wider context. So we kind of touched on that last week. There'll be a certain amount of overlap. But all this, all this assumes something. All this language, all this talk assumes something that we need to spell out this morning. And I say that because Actually, in most cultures and in most times, this is not something you would have to spell out. But in 21st century Britain, the UK, indeed Western Europe for that matter, we have to spell this out. That all this privilege, all these titles, all this relationship that God is speaking of assumes something very profound. And that is that we are to be together. Duh. But we need to spell that out. I, as a preacher, need to spell this out because we're very individualistic. You know, we, we, we engage with others on our terms. We, we come together with expectations of what I'm going to get from someone. People come to church, and I'm not knocking it, out of a sense of need. They're coming not seeing how they can serve, but what they can get, what, what you know, I, I feel lonely, or I feel I'm looking for a, a, a girlfriend, or, I'm, uh, you know, or my life's falling apart, or I just got the sack, I don't know where to turn. We come out of a sense of need, and that's fine. That's fine. But we can't stay in that place, because God has something in mind. We've used this imagery three times, once in the dedication, once at the beginning of the service already, and now a third time. God has something in mind for us to build together this this community, this people with a purpose. And so we must not stop being together. It is important that you are here this morning. I spoke to a lady at the, uh, during the coffee time, and she, this is her fifth, fifth time here. And I said to her, welcome home. And I say to every single one of you, whether you've been coming for years, or whether you're, this is your first time, whether you're just coming with the family, I want to say welcome home. We are enriched by the fact that you are with us. You may not see that, 
but we are enriched by that. And so we come together knowing that God wants us to be together. And so this morning, or this afternoon it's now, next few minutes, I want to begin that process of redefining what being together is about. And to do that, I'm going to look at a little passage out of Colossians. If you want to do a little bit of background reading, there's plenty of places you can go in the scriptures. But Colossians is a great place. I've been reading through it a number of times just recently. Colossians is primarily about the victory of Christ, who Jesus is, and he's the very center of what we do here. He's the one we worship. He's the one we we pour out our hearts to. It's in his name that we gather. But beyond that, Paul, the writer of this letter to the Colossian church, begins to unpack the implications of that for the community. And so we're going to pick up a a few thoughts of that today. Colossians then, chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, this is Paul writing, but he must have read Peter's letter, at least they talked about it, picking up the same themes. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. You know, this morning when you got up, you went to the, you know, the washing basket, or you went to your wardrobe, or you went to your chest of drawers, and you made a choice about what you were going to wear. We're fortunate in this culture, we have more than one set of clothes. Some cultures there is no choice, but we have a choice and you, you selected based on whether it was ironed or not, or whether you, know, whether you liked it or not, or whether it went with your eyeliner or not, or whatever. You selected, you chose what it was you were going to wear today. Note the way Paul puts this. Clothe yourselves. There's an element of choice there. Choose how you are going to be with one another. It's an important thing to say. Some of us have a naturally sunny disposition. God bless you. Others of us do not have a naturally sunny disposition. But every single one of us needs to choose ourselves, make this choice about how we are going to be within community. Clothe yourselves with Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And then it goes on to say, bear with one another and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. That's one of the key motivations for us being and living in community. That God has loved us, therefore, we love one another. In that Exodus 19 passage, forgive me if I repeat myself, but what is about to happen there is that they're about to get the Ten Commandments given to them and the rest that follows, the Torah as it became known. But God precedes that gift of his law, which was going to make the, the Jewish nation a distinctive nation. He precedes by reminding them that he is the God who loved them and saved them. Therefore, it's important for us as we go about building community, being community, rethinking and redefining community, that we remember from where we've come. It's not a case of get your act together and then I'll love you, says God. He says, I love you. (laughs) I've given everything to you. I embrace you. 
I have plans and purposes for you. Things I have decided before time. And because of that, because of my warmth and love and loving kindness towards you, therefore, be this way with one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these things, all these virtues put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body, you were called to peace and be thankful. That attitude of gratitude thing coming out again. We've had such fun hearing the testimonies over the last few weeks of people who are giving thanks for, for God's grace and mercy and healing towards them. Let's draw three little thoughts up here, then I'm going to tell a story and then pray the blessing and go home to lunch. First of all, bear with one another. Do you know, I am the kind of person who by nature needs to hear that kind of thing. I have needed to learn patience. One of the ways I've measured patience over the years is, as you know, we have relatives on the west coast of America. Our daughter lives there, we have grandchildren there, and so we frequently, as frequently as we can, I should say, travel over there. And I, one of the ways I measure my patience, or how I am bearing with people, is by how I respond to that single parent who comes walking down the aisle with two kiddies, one on a hip and one sort of dangling along and sits down one row away from me. Usually as I get on the plane, I've got my iPod, I'm looking at the movie thing, I'm looking at what the menu is and I'm looking forward to, as best I can, an 11 hour flight to Los Angeles. And I, I kind of settle myself down, I've got everything, I'm ready, but then, horror of horrors, this single parent comes down, or this lone parent comes down with the kiddies. How are you going to be with them? You know, are you going to sit there and scowl and tut, or am I going to sit there and scowl and tut as the kids begin to get restless and misbehave, or are we going to do what we can to ease that journey? That's how I measure it. I don't know how you measure how you're doing. I'm getting better at it. It used to be, you know, horrendous for me. But I'm getting better at this. I think it must be because my kids have grown up and I have grandchildren. In fact, the Lord said to me once, I'm going to teach you how to love people through your children. And boy, did he teach me. Did he test me? But anyway, they, they are growing up and they're doing well. And I'm learning to bear with people, to be patient with people. How are you doing? How are we doing? We need to learn to bear with one another and be patient. The next thing, forgive one another. Forgive one another. You know, if you are carrying unforgiveness, I, I don't know what to say to you other than please take yourself down to the right, your left, and get some prayer ministry at the end of the service. Please ask God to forgive you and please forgive that person. Please, you know, pray a blessing on that person. One of the things I think that is disturbing about the Church of Jesus Christ is you hear all sorts of justifications for unforgiveness. You hear things like saying, people saying, well, you know, I'd like to forgive, but they haven't asked my forgiveness yet. And you can't forgive if somebody is unrepentant. Uh, excuse me, there's a big scramble of thoughts there. If you are carrying unforgiveness towards someone, that is your problem, not their problem. It is your problem, and you need to seek God's face, you need to ask God to forgive you, and then you need to do your level best to be a blessing to that person, to forgive them. 
If God had waited before sending his son Jesus to die upon the cross, if he had waited until we were in that place of saying, oh God, I'm really sorry, please help me, we would still be in a place of, of death and destruction now, but God took the, the, the initiative. He saved us, he gave himself for us so that we might have the potential, the possibility of forgiveness. That's why Paul says, forgive one another as God has forgiven you. So if you're still wrestling and justifying by any kind of mental or spiritual gymnastics you care to adopt, if you are still holding on to unforgiveness, you need to do some business with God. We need to be a community where grace and forgiveness are part of our genetic code. Thirdly, love one another. Love one another. This is a challenge. For many years now, we have talked about learning to love because it doesn't come easily. I was reading a little thing this week where somebody said that we are born natural enemies to one another. I'm not sure quite what I think about that. Maybe, maybe you see that. I, I wasn't sure whether I was quite there with the, with the author. However, the truth is that as the community of God, we need to learn to love one another. And it takes time, it takes patience. And there'll be breakthroughs and there will be setbacks. Over this Christmas holiday, I watched a bit of TV, as we all do, and uh, Fliss and I were, were actually, uh, we came across this, po this program called Compulsive Hoarders. Has anybody ever seen that, Compulsive Hoarders? You know, I, I, that kind of program doesn't work for me. You know, if I see a program about hoarding, I, I just want to sort of get a bin bag and say, yeah, we'll sort it out, you know. But this one, for some reason, this one, for some reason, compulsive hoarders, immediately captivated me. I think it was because it painted such an idyll of this wonderful little village called Westcott Village near Dorking in Surrey. Now, I don't know if anybody comes from that here. Do you live in that village by any chance? No? Okay. This little village, Westcott near Dorking in Surrey, it's, it's, it sounds like a taste of heaven. It looks as if something dropped out of the skies into, into the, the leafy lanes of southern England. And in fact, there's so much going on there. One of the residents was interviewed and, and they said that this is an inclusive village. You know, if you, you know, many villages, they said, if you go there, you know, you have to wait 10 years before they'll let you make the tea at the back of church. But here, if you come along and you, you want to get involved, you know, there's the dra dramatic society, there's the gardening society, there's the, there's the reading society, there's this society, that society. And, and anybody who wants to help, we just embrace them. You know, if you want to make the tea, you get on with it. Wonderful. And they were celebrating this, this wonderful sort of community spirit that they had. And then the village itself, oh, mamma mia. Every year they brushed it all up for Britons in bloom. And they were gold winners some years, and bad years they were silver winners. It was just idyllic. But the village carried with it a guilty secret. Not so much a secret, to be honest a gentleman called Richard Wallace. Richard was awkward. It was, it was awkward, not just he was awkward. It was awkward because his family had been in the village since the year dot. 
His grandparents had been in the village. His parents had been in the village. They'd all died. In fact, Richard owned nearly a million pounds worth of property. Slap, bang, in the center of this village. But he was something of a recluse. And he was a compulsive hoarder. And even though he had a three-bedroom bungalow, he had two semi-detached houses and five garages, every single one of them was filled from floor to ceiling with newspapers. He was collecting newspapers. His plan was to archive them and make a record of British society. That was the rationale. The reality was, the houses were absolutely jammed, and he had to crawl through little tunnels to get anywhere. There was no, he hadn't had a bath for seven years. He, uh, he, he cooked on one half of his cooker because papers were piled up on the other half of the papers. A fireman, the fire brigade went in there, and one of the fire brigade men in the middle of this visit, when they're crawling through these little tunnels trying to fit smoke detectors, said, I am terrified. And bless his heart, fairly early on in the interview, he said, I was asked the other day, how do I live like this? And he said, I don't live, I exist. It is becoming a bit of a problem. <laughs> well, I guess that's a start. Anyway, the, the Britain in Bloom competition was, was looming. And everybody was running around and they were literally sort of painting this and cutting that and picking up bits of litter and they kept saying, what are we gonna do about Richard? And you know, they interviewed an angry man in a Ford Mondeo you know, venting, you know, and somebody else said we should just set a match to it and all the rest of it. Anyway, a little delegation sent a local businessman, a guy who ran a kind of landscape in, uh, gardening company, to Richard and said, look, the Britain in Bloom committee will pay for a fence if you will allow us to fence off your property from the road. Well, he was a bit indignant. He'd already been to court, I should say. He'd represented himself, and he had won the right to keep his garden as he saw fit. So people were pretty antagonistic. Anyway, this poor guy, Andy, I think his name was, was sent, knocked on the door, and he said to him, he said, Mr. Wallace, I, um, I've been sent uh, by the committee, and they said that they'll pay for a fence if you'll let me put, up, uh, put it up. Now, he expected to be, get a you know, lambasting. To his surprise, Mr. Wallace, Richard Wallace said, okay, I suppose so if you must. So he put this fence up, and in the putting of the fence up, he had one or two little, you know, slightly cheery interactions with Mr. Wallace, the compulsive hoarder. At the end of it, they interviewed Andy, and Andy said to him, he said, you know, he's, a, he's an interesting chap, really. He's, he's quite well-read. Nice to know you're listening. <laughs> he's quite well read. And he's quite funny. He's got a very dry sense of humor. And then he said, you know what? I, I think I've struck up a bit of a report. I, I've, I've said to him, I'll come and help him tidy up his garden. Because actually, it's so bad at the moment. He can't get to his front door. He has to sort of do this mountain climbing thing over all the rubbish in the garden to get to the front door. 
So anyway, a few weeks later, he went back and he spent a Saturday afternoon and they were in the garden and they were clearing up stuff. And, and this chap, Richard, who we are, the viewer, beginning to get to know and like a little bit now, and Richard's saying, oh, there's just so much rubbish. I never realized there was so much. And, and Andy said, it's incredible. He says, look, would you mind if, if I came back again and, and maybe I'll get one or two other residents to, to come along as well. And Richard Wallace looked with very surprised. He said, well, they wouldn't come. Anyway, Andy left, put a little thing in the post office, and uh, on the prearranged Saturday, a few weeks ahead, he arrived at two o'clock, and they set two to clear up the garden, and then after about 20 minutes, somebody arrived, and by the end of the afternoon, there's about half a dozen people. Well, the story, and I can't keep spelling it out and spinning the story out too much more, but what happened over the next few weeks was that instead of hating this man, regarding his property and him as a person as a blight upon the community, people began to get to know him. And whereas there had been antagonism, lawsuits, high court injunctions, counter appeals, etc., etc., cost to be paid, and all the rest of it, it was all very antagonistic. What began to happen was that people began to feel a bit of an affection for this chap. They cleared out 30 tons of rubbish from the front garden of this bungalow alone. 30 tons. I'm noticing a number of people looking at one another. (laughs) What have you got at home? 30 tons. At the end of it, Andy, who by now had a bit of a a, a genuine affection and rapport with Richard Wallace, said to him, you must come to my home. Look at the state of you, you know. And he was quite kind of teasing, but but direct. He said, look at you. You need to get a haircut and let's feed you up a bit. He was living on two hard-boiled eggs a day. So they discovered. So they started feeding him. And then at the end of the program, there's this glorious day where the garden is pretty clear. There's probably about 12 or 15 local residents. Many of the people who'd been frothing at the mouth and antagonistic at the beginning of the program are in the garden helping. And what broke me up was that this gentleman, Richard, is stood in the porch of his house and he said, Just look at the state of me. Not look at the state of it. Look at the state of me. How did it ever get this bad? And he's in his late 40s, early 50s, and suddenly begins to well up and he says, my dear mother would have been appalled. And on camera, in front of the nation, he begins to break down and weep a little bit. You see, what struck me about that was when we're talking about God loving us, when we're talking about the command, it is a command to love one another, actually God comes to us and woos us with loving kindness. That's his approach. He could stay on a cloud somewhere at the top of some mountain and shout at us, get your act together for heaven's sake. 
Some people think that's the way God is. I've always assumed that God was like that, that they were actually pretty disgusted with them. But the reality is that confrontation in human relationships and in our relationship with God doesn't work. Oh yes, accountability is key, and we'll talk more about that beginning next week, but, but actually confrontation, the kind of grist for our mill in this society, unions against employers or the government or each other or neighbors or you know, fallouts over the height of your cypress landi next door and all the rest of it, but actually, it's God's kindness that leads to repentance. And for as long as that community, Westcott Village, near Dorking in Surrey, was issuing writs and shouting and, and being cross with this blight on their perfect little village, he just took up a position and resisted to the best of his ability. But when one person, that's all it took, broke ranks and began to bear with him, forgive him, (laughs) yeah, love him a little. Oh my goodness. It brought healing to a whole community. It melted the man's heart so that he began to not only accept help, begrudgingly at first, but recognized that he needed help. One last thing I need to say about this. I am not saying that all the do-gooders, as we get accused of being, I am not saying that all the do-gooders among us need to get turbocharged and do more, All the nice people among us need to be nicer. I'm not saying that. This community thing is a reciprocal thing. It's not just, you know, and if there's any fault in terms of the the analogy about Westcott Village, it's that the community was in in a position to help this man. We're not talking about that here. We're talking about building community where it's reciprocal. We all need to bear with one another. It's a two way process. All of us have something to offer and something to contribute. We all need to learn to love one another, and yes, we all need to forgive one another. But the reality is, God wants to model something here, something that is better than Westcott Village near Dorking in Surrey. Something that, a a community here that doesn't just embrace and work hard about one individual, or one issue, or one justice thing in our society, but actually begins to model something, a way of life in Christ that is radical and transforming and prophetic. So that's the journey that we're on. We have been on it. And that's what we're going to be looking at in greater depth. There's going to be comfort and there's going to be challenge for every single one of us as we seek to build community, even the kingdom of God.
God bless you guys. Let's have the worship team back up. Thank you, Joe. Let's just stand and pray. We will finish. It's a little late. Forgive me. Bear with me. (laughs) We will finish with worship, but let's just pray. Heavenly Father, I want to say thank you to you because all of this is simply follow-up to what you've already done for us. Once we were lost, now we've been found. Once, as your word says, we were enemies, but now we're sons and daughters. Once we were alone, but now we are together. And we pray, Lord God, that you would build authentic community here as we seek your face and seek to worship you. And everyone said... Amen.